Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Doing the Thing podcast. Uh, this episode and episodes for the foreseeable future, you're going to see a, a difference in, in how we do this. I think we're going to get to more of a, a storytelling kind of mindset, and you'll, you'll get a good feel for it today. Uh, Phil has a really interesting story that he wants to share with us, and it's very relevant. Bill, can you tell everybody a little bit about what we're going to do today? Yeah, man, listen, it's about survival. And there is no better story that I know of uh, that exemplifies the human spirit, such as the Ernest Shackleton story. And in, you know, in this exceptional time that we're all faced with, what we realize is that you know, the human spirit drives us forward. And it's all about our motivation and our positivity that keeps us alive and keeps us going. And when you hear the story, if you're not familiar with who Shackleton is, I guarantee you will be after this. Um, so man, let's, let's jump right in. Let's do it, man. Without further ado, enjoy. Um, so we're going to share that story with you. And the importance of it really transcends just human survival. Certainly, some of us are faced with life and death choices right now and looking at our family and concerns even to step out to the grocery store. We're isolated. We're, we're taken away from that important human, human interaction. But as importantly, we're all leaders in our own way. Whether you're a leader in a business or a leader in the family, um, we're faced with leadership choices and sometimes you know, we're human beings too, and it can be difficult to see the path forward. So that's why today's story, I think, is so relevant and so important. So look, let's, um, let's, let's, let's start talking about this. So Jason, I want you to imagine you're looking for a job, <laughs> you go on Indeed, and, this, and you see two ads, and this is the first one. You ready? Yep, ready. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. <laughs> Are we talking about joining the Marine Corps or? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so listen, right below that ad is another ad for a journey, but this one says um, featuring the latest scientific breakthroughs amazing groundbreaking technology have the chance to be the first to experience the new trends in science now, which one might you go for i'm curious second one sounds exciting sounds <laughs> promising <laughs> <laughs> what, what was it that got you you know innovation science you know up-to-date modern technology you know sounds like um you know, sounds like something that's a sure thing. Well, <laughs> let me tell you how that second journey turned out. Uh, because, I, you know, I'm like you. I would have done the same thing. Um, but that second expedition uh, was the Terra Nova expedition. And uh, it was led by a, a man named Captain Robert Scott in uh, January of 1911. And... It's said that every decision Captain Richard Scott made led to the death of every crew member. So here's some highlights. Um, yeah, he brought innovative new technology. What he didn't mention in that ad is 
the technology was both experimental and more importantly, untested. That's not good. <laughs> that changes everything. <laughs> yeah, so picture this. They were, he brought, so backing up. In an expedition, right, you, you, have, you have to bring supplies, you have to bring food and you know, equipment and all those things, right? And normally, what are you gonna have? Like sled dogs, right? Something to transport it with, yeah. Yeah, something to transport. Yeah, and maybe the men are carrying heavy packs and stuff like that. So his idea was maybe a good one. He had three gigantic motorized sleds. Latest technology, right? Three gigantic motorized sleds. Um, and the sleds were designed to carry all the food and equipment so the men could stay strong and the animals wouldn't be taxed. So kind of makes sense, right? Yeah. In theory, yeah. Um, problem was, he didn't test them in extreme weather. So we're talking about a, a, an expedition in Antarctica. Um, he also didn't test the weight capacity versus ice, ice strength. So shortly into the journey, maybe day two, the largest, the most important, the one have, carrying most of the load, maybe 50% of their equipment and supplies, just breaks through the ice and drops 50 fathoms. Gone. Oh. oh. Yeah. Um, within a couple days, the other two freeze. Dang. So there's that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like some, some guys are going to have to experience some, some heavy loads and, and some hardships. Human, you know, human weight-bearing capacity there after that. Yeah, and you know, I, I hate to be hypercritical of somebody who died a horrible death, but I'm I'm just going to go out there and say, contingency planning is important. I mean, Jason, you're ex-military, right? Was there ever a time when you went out into the field that you didn't have a plan B and plan C and maybe D, E, F? Absolutely. And we used to call, you know, we used to, before we even go out, it was pre-combat checks and pre-combat inspections. You know, you check yourself and you have someone else inspect you, you know, make sure that every, all your equipment is working appropriately. It's worn right, you know, individually. Vehicles are working. Vehicles are equipped for the terrain and the mission ahead. Mm. Indeed. Well, yeah, it's too bad for the Terra Nova expedition that maybe you weren't at the lead. Well, it's too bad that they didn't do their PCIs and PCCs. <laughs> I think that's uh, one of the oldest, uh, you know, from military mindset, I think that's one of the oldest lessons that, uh, you know, especially from the inception of, you know, modern technology, like guns. <laughs> so, you know, Scott's methodology and any methodology, when it's built on a flawed initial perception, is going to have compound failure effects, right? So because he had these machines to carry all the equipment, the men didn't have to burden them. And because the men didn't have to burden them, um, it became more important him, to him to move quickly across the snow and be the first one to get there in the shortest amount of time. So what he did is, rather than taking dogs that, you know, every other expedition before him took that dogs that are acclimated to this kind of weather that can survive, that can pull, and maybe they're a little slower, but they can do it. Scott brought ponies. 
Yeah, Scott Brad Punk. Did they so make the trip over? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and unfortunately, the ponies didn't last long either. So now you have a scenario where the majority of the equipment and, oh, by the way, the majority of the food, gone, you know. And if it's not gone, it's now on the packs of the men because the ponies are gone and the things are gone. And so he did have the foresight then to ration out the food and to set um, little stockpiles along the way so that assuming they got to where they were going to get to on the way back, they'd still have, you know, things to sustain them. But that unfortunately meant that the, what they brought with them didn't have the caloric in, intake capability to support the men carrying these heavy loads. So as you can imagine, morale starts to shoot, malnutrition starts to intrude, right? Right. Well, at least they had state-of-the-art technology and navigational equipment to get back to that food, right? Well, not so much. Unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> um, they didn't even bring snow goggles. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so, you know, it's easy to predict the end of the story here. The men, and actually 11 miles away from one of the waypoints with all the supplies they needed to survive and get back uh, to their ship, they all froze to death and died. That's a, that's a nightmare scenario right there. So, so happier times, <laughs> happier yeah. times. Let's talk about Sir Ernest Shackleton. And, you know, even though both of us and probably everybody listening wouldn't have jumped on that ship that had low probability of success, take a wild stab at how many people responded to that ad saying, you know, it's unlikely you're even going to return. I would say not very many. I would say a dozen. Yeah, you would intuitively think that, right? You know, two or three or 10 or 12 people, 5,000, Jason. Wow. <laughs> What's the draw to that? I don't know. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe it's that stupid element of being a guy that says, oh, yeah, that's your challenge? Oh, I'm up for that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> too much testosterone and too much time on your hands. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, you know, if you, you know, we both honor our country with our service, but if you looked at the things that are potential risks on paper, if the ad for the army in my case and both army and Marines in your case, right? If those things said, you're probably not going to live, would you like to apply? Well, I don't know. <laughs> That's, you know, that, that was kind of the draw. I guess that was kind of the draw for us at the time because I joined, you know, you know, I, I signed my papers for the Marines the day after 9-11. So that was something like, hey, you know you're going to go to war, but there's a purpose behind that. You know, I had a patriotic purpose behind that, and, you know, that, that was my driving force. What drove these guys to something that was just so obscure? I don't know, and it gets even wackier from there. So... You know, under normal, like, um, <laughs> under a normal set of circumstances, let's say you are Ernest Shackleton and you've just run this ad, you know, how would you go about weeding through 5,000 applicants to pick the select number of crew members that you might have? 
I mean, you got to have some type of sea experience or expeditionary experience, I imagine. I imagine that's got to be some of the criteria. Um, survival skills, um, maybe some hunting skills, maybe learning a little bit from the last expedition, tracking and navigational skills, um, logistics. <laughs> yeah, but okay, so all those things are important, but a, a person with a little bit of expeditionary experience might have those. Um, so would you then lean towards really strong, fit, younger folks, or would you go for the old salty dogs? You know, sometimes I think you've got to go for people that can be led. You know, sometimes that's, I think that's the, the normal, you know, I think that's the normal hiring criteria, right? Somebody that can, you know, somebody that has skills, physically, physical ability, and, and they can be taught or led or coached. You know, it's interesting. If I were in his shoes, I might have gone for the younger, stronger, especially because I'm an old dude, right? Um, <laughs> I'd say to myself, we're going to Antarctica, and it's going to be physically demanding. I want strong people around me. Yeah, they need some experience, but, you know, I want strong hands on the deck, so to speak. And that's not what Shackleton did. Instead, he went for the old salty dogs. And his basic belief was, if things got crazy and things got scary, these guys would keep their composure. And composure, state of mind was important to Shackleton. So that was one thing. And he felt that that would lead to high morale. Um, you know, then he picked his second in command. And what are the kinds of things you might look for if you're picking your second in command for this kind of an expedition? Man, I don't know. I would um, definitely somebody that um, could fill my role quickly and easily. So, so some skills, a great background, um, you know, and, you know, I don't want to spoil it for you, but there is something else. So I'll let you say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. The inclination is you want to pick the most experienced next person, right? And that's not what Shackleton did. In fact, he was looking for someone that shared his vision and his love for exploration. He wanted somebody with a bold, eccentric personality, somebody that was fun-loving, that people would enjoy being around, and importantly, could tell a good joke and have a good laugh. That's something that you, you know, I don't think a lot of people would do, you know. Clearly, a shared vision um, would be, you know, something that would be on a criteria for, you know, a second command, an executive officer, or something like that, especially in, you know, an austere condition, that's, you know, that's somebody that you want to have, you know, carry on that mission, obviously, but, you know, somebody that's eccentric, and, you know, all those other traits, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, it gets weirder from here. So, imagine you're one of those 5,000 people, and you put in your application, you know, whatever, resume, CV, whatever it is back in those days, and you get sorted through this pile uh, of the mad, the hopeless, and the possible, and you end up in the possible pile, and that's actually what he called them, by the way. Um, so you get called in for an interview, and you're preparing yourself, like, what would you be prepared to say for an interview to an expedition to Antarctica? Man, I, I would have to be prepared with, you know, some of my experiences, some of my skills that apply. Yeah, yeah, you would. Um, 
So you might be surprised when you're asked, hey, do you have good teeth? <laughs> you might be more surprised when you're asked to sing or tell a joke. Mm. That's actually what he did, right? He, he checked to see if they had varicose veins. He checked their teeth and asked them, how are your teeth? And he, he made them sing or tell a joke. He asked them if they could write. He wanted to know if they keep a diary. That's kind of off the wall, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's definitely foreshadowing, and he probably didn't even know it. <laughs> well, I don't know. But the most important thing to him, and this is one of the many, many takeaways from this story, is Shackleton loved happy people. And he believed that loyalty comes from happiness. And it's easier for a loyal person, uh, or for a cheerful person to be loyal. Um, than others. So that's why he had him tell the jokes and stories and all the other things, but it turned out to be very prescient. Um, so ha, let's talk about the journey. Um, right. <laughs> and let's start in 1915, on January 18th, 1915. Okay. Imagine that you're on this ship and you have just sailed within a day of your destination. You set out a year ago, August 1st, 1914. Coincidentally, that's the day Germany declared war on Russia. Um, you depart from London to Buenos Aires, Argentina. From there, um, the, uh, a whaling station in South Georgia on the tip of uh, the African coastline, South African coastline. Um, and from there, you're almost to Antarctica and you're a day away and you can actually see it and your ship becomes hopelessly wedged in the ice in a way that one of the crew members described as how an almond is wedged in a chocolate bar. That's uh, that's pretty stuck. <laughs> that's pretty stuck. <laughs> and on that day and forward um, for the next 10 months, the ship is dragged backwards away from Antarctica. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So we're going to talk later about what happened during those 10 months. So keep a, keep a pin in that one. Um, it floats backwards for 10 months to October 27th. And on October 27th at 5 p.m., Shackleton gives the order to abandon ship. They pull necessary supplies from the boat. Um, obviously food, whatever equipment they may need. They're able to uh, uh, take off three lifeboats and musical instruments. That seem weird to you? Seems like the wrong equipment. Seems like the wrong equipment, yeah. So for the next four months, so remember, they get within a day of, they can see Antarctica, they're within a day of reaching it. Their boat gets wedged. They float backwards across the sea for a full 10 months. Now their ship sinks. They've got three lifeboats and some supplies, and they're, they're living on a shelf of ice in total darkness for the next four months. The only light they get is moonlight at night, right? Because this is Antarctica, and there's no, no other light, and they're just laying on their backs in a tent on ice. Oh, man. How's that sound? Sounds hopeless. <laughs> sounds a little scary. Well, yeah, I guess the ad was correct, right? Yeah, yeah. They don't so, mind. 
you know, here we are in uh, in this situation with COVID-19 where, you know, it's like the other day, my I told my family, you know, I've never made lasagna for you. And they're like, yeah, you should make lasagna. Uh, okay, cool. I'll go to the store. Wait a minute. Should I really go to the store during COVID-19? Is it right to have that exposure? So we were all a little disappointed. I didn't make my lasagna. We ended up rifling through the refrigerator and freezer over the whole weekend and just put together stuff, right? So that's my problem. These guys, you know what they lived on? Well, did these ones, these, these guys take dogs or ponies? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they took dogs. They took dogs. So I think Spot was the, probably one of the first ones to go. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, penguins, seals, and dog. That was their diet for a steady four months. Um, but then as things do, winter fell away leading into spring. And with spring came the spring and the summer hints of the sun, right? And it started to melt away the ice under their tents. And the snow started to melt and crack. And eventually this whole crew who now survived 14 months had to pile into three tiny rowboats. <laughs> and for the next four months, they lived in these rowboats. Now imagine, these are rowboats, right? And we're talking about, what is that? I don't, I can't think of what that sea is, but I'm pretty sure it's not just like a calm, soothing bed of water. No. I'm pretty sure there are Arctic storms and big waves and all those things that come with it, right? Right. So these guys are on a boat for four months. They're facing these ravaging seas. And then at times when the storms die, it's just flat water boredom, right? And they have to paddle and paddle and paddle and paddle. And finally, after four months, they reach this stinky guano-covered bat dung covered island called Elephant Island. I know it's ridiculous, right? Yeah. <laughs> they reach a place called Elephant Island and they make a plan. Most of the crew, uh, so let me back up a step. Not only is it a bat crap covered, I don't want to use the other word, bat crap covered island that no doubt stinks, it's a flat island too. So there's absolutely no shelter from the wind and the, the rain and all the storms that come, no mountains, nothing. Wow. So their only choice, the people that stayed back, is they actually lived huddled under these rowboats. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and hardship after hardship. Yeah, yeah so. to get worse. Maybe a little bit better with the island. At least they have, you know, solid ground underneath. I mean, you, you could argue that. <laughs> you could argue that. And maybe a new, uh, new protein source of bats, sounds like. <laughs> or guano, you know. Guano, you know. So this is April 16th, 1916. Most of the crew stays living under these boats. Shackleton and a few selected members get into the third boat, and they start paddling for rescue. And they paddle 800 miles. Wow. Hey, think about that for a minute. You, you know, talk about Popeye forearms. 
No kidding. Hopefully they weren't fueled by bat because that's what got us in the situation to begin with. Oh yeah. Good point. <laughs> Maybe that's why Shackleton volunteered to be the one to go out for rescue. <laughs> um, yeah. So 800 miles, May 16th, 1916, they reached South Georgia Island at the tip of Africa again. And for the next 36 hours, they hike up and down mountains, right? So they finally reach civilization. And this is the first time in 497 days that anybody's even heard of what happened to this expedition and found out that any of them survived. So it gets crazier. Now, I just want to go back for a moment to remind everyone that there's two rowboats with people huddled underneath 24-7. <laughs> and this has been for one month, right? Now it's May 23rd, so it's five weeks. They've been living five weeks huddled under rowboats. Um, the first rescue attempt set sail on May 23rd. And unfortunately, they get within 100 miles of the island and they can't get there because the ice is just too thick. So they turn back. June 10th, the next rescue attempt happens. Now, again, these guys in the boat have been now living there 60 days underneath the boat, right? Underneath these little tiny rowboats, 24 seven. Um, the second rescue mission fails. The third one falls short. That's on August 25th. So now we're talking May, June, July, August. Now we've got four months under a boat, right? Yeah. On August 30th, the fourth rescue attempt, the, uh, the Chilean vessel Yelcho arrives on the island. And guess what? Every man is alive. Amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> that everybody survived that long and in those conditions. Just a stupid, ridiculous story. But it gets even more crazy. Um, because, so imagine this, right? You've got people with frostbitten fingers that, you know, have been living under a boat for four months, have floated backwards 10 months, lived on ice for four months, rowboated for four months, lived under a boat for four months in a guano-covered, crap-smelling island, right? And so they get them back, they nurse them back to health, and they start interviewing, like, you know, Tell us about your experience. Now, what do you think you might hear from somebody that's gone through this? Yeah, I, I, would, I would just, uh, I don't know what to, I would expect. Somebody of, you know, you, you would think you'd hear some traumatic stories. Traumatic stories, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was crazy experience. I don't think any, very few people living have actually experienced something like that and told the tale. So here's what they talked about. They literally talked about how much fun they had. <laughs> you sure these aren't Marines? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? If they aren't, they're honorary. That's yeah, right. They, they talked about the camaraderie that developed between all of them. They told jokes. They shared the best jokes that they heard. They read captions from their diary and in their diaries they didn't write about doom and gloom and death they talked about 
the weekly concerts that they had. They talked about the hockey matches when the ship was still wedged in the ice and they were living on that shelf. They had everyday hockey matches against one another. They wrote poems. Um, they had weekly concerts. They celebrated birthdays and Christmas. And the most important thing that they said through all of this was the music and the stories and the jokes. And that's the thing that got all of them through. And really what that does is brings us full circle to the value of the story in my mind. Because so here we are in these exceptional circumstances where we can't even leave home. We can't go see mom and dad and give them a hug, right? And our friends and we can't go to the pub and all those things. And it's easy to get deep within ourselves and sometimes lose sight of the importance of, you know, sharing a story with our family or creating a new recipe together. You know, when they lived on the boat, they had decoration contests. They would literally undecorate, if that's a word, and redecorate their cabins and then give awards to whoever made the best looking cabin, right? And so here we are with cabin fever and we have the opportunity to do all these same things. And these are the things that matter, that get us through these times. They create real good memories, you know, lasting memories. That's absolutely. Yeah. It, it kind of reminds me of the, um, have you ever read Tribe from Sebastian Junger? I have not. So he, he writes about, um, you know, people that were in concentration camps, people that were, you know, hostages or people that are in combat and, and things like that and how they kind of emerge on the other side and they develop, you know, this kind of a community. I wonder if those folks kind of felt the same way as, you know, maybe soldiers or people that were, you know, in captivity or captured or something like that, where they, they almost long for those times again. They almost miss those times. You know, because they were with their tribe. They created a tribe and a community that way. And, you know, not saying that that's a, it's a good thing that they missed the bad times, but what if, what if you were able to continue and after all of this, you build your tribe at home, you build your community around you, but what if you're able to keep it going after this? You know? What a cool thought. Yeah. What a cool thought. So, you know, here we are, right? And if we're not careful, we can think about all the things we can't do. And this lockdown time, we can feel like we're trapped in this space and just waiting to get our freedom back. But let's remember what that freedom looked like. 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week, whatever, stress, you know, busy school appointments, after school, this, this, that, and the other thing. And we have these moments right now where we have nothing to do with but be with each other and maybe create that little tribe experience, right? That when we get to the other side of this, we're going to remember how much fun we had together and the stories we told one another and the cool things we made together. I think that's a, a brilliant point and exactly what this story, I think, speaks to. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, 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 you know, you know, maybe, maybe you're, you're in, in your home and, and you don't know your neighbors. You know, you don't know how to make the first step. Well, this is a good time to try it. This is a good time to get to know them, a good time to, to learn about them. You know, um, I randomly delivered a box of donuts to my neighbor's <laughs> front, <laughs> front door the other day. And, and now, now I, I see that, I, I, or somehow I see them all the time and we're always talking to them. 
you know. And, you know, it just takes something as, as dumb as dropping off donuts. They probably hate donuts. They probably don't even want donuts. But it starts a conversation, you know. Yeah, and look, you can bring a box of donuts, put it on the door, back up six feet, and then they can open the door and you can talk, right? Yeah. Oh, that's Contactless so delivery right there. So, yeah, listen, we want to leave you with this inspiring story. And more importantly, this thought, could you bring donuts to your neighbor? Could you do something that before this whole emergency happened, you, you didn't have the time or the inclination to do? And most importantly, can you create some joy in the family? Can you tell those stories? Can you create something together, right? Share music. Don't just binge on Netflix. Now is a time that when you get on the other side of this, maybe you've created a brand new tribe of your own. Well said. Our work here is done, my friend. <laughs> thank you everybody for listening. Bill, thank you for that awesome story. I hope at least one person gets some value from that today. Yeah, yeah. And I think they will. We will see you next week. And please remember to subscribe and do share this with friends. If it was moving for you, it'll be moving for them.